Today's reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 9, verses 18 to 29. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, lay it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. That concludes the reading today. You know, friends, we, we live in a world, I was thinking about this this week, that both loves differences and hates differences. We love differences and we, we hate differences. What do I mean by that? Well, on the one hand, we crave the freedom to do and be whatever we feel like doing and being. All right? We crave that. We want that. We worship at the altar of personal autonomy. But on the other hand, out of the same mouth, right? On the other hand, we don't want to be treated differently than anyone else. So we demand equal respect, equal acceptance, equal treatment. We, we want to make our own choices, but we don't want anyone treating us any differently because of our choices. You know what I'm talking about? We want both those things. And suffice it to say that the Word of God refuses to cooperate with that. <laughs> That's what that is. The Word presses every man and woman, every boy and girl, toward unity in Christ. But you know what else the Word of God does? It makes distinctions. It creates separations. It draws boundaries. Hebrews 4, 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. What does a, some of you guys are probably, you probably have knives in your pocket right now. Don't pull it out, okay? Don't threaten the person next to you. But, but think about it, okay? And even if you don't, track with me here. What, what is a sword or a knife, what does it do by definition? 
It cuts. It separates. It splits things in two. Do you, do you know the word of the Bible does that? Because the God of the Bible is in the business of doing that. And the God of the Bible does his cutting and separating and dividing and distinguishing work through the words of the Bible. He separates, he makes distinctions. And at the end of Genesis 9, the word of God makes a really important distinction. So just to give you a little background, if you're, if you're jumping in new, maybe this is your first Sunday, you're thinking, what is going on here? That was the weirdest Bible text. I didn't even know that text was in the Bible. Have no fear, here's some background, okay? The three chapters prior to this tell the story of Noah and the flood. You may be familiar with that. The Lord sees the wickedness of man because he's perfect in knowledge. The Lord judges the wickedness of man because he is perfect in justice. And the Lord saves one man and his family because he's abundant in mercy. Three sentences for three chapters. And he does it through an ark, a boat that Noah built with his own hands and in obedience to God's command. And for a whole year, the, the waters of a flood that the Lord brings on the earth ravage the earth. Genesis 7:23. God blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And then the waters subside, the dry ground starts to appear, the earth dries out, and plants and trees reappear. And then Genesis 8, 18, the Lord brings out Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Think about that. And his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them. If I could, I, before we jump into the bulk of this sermon, I, I want to have a word with those of you that are fathers. What, why did God deliver Noah, of all people, as an expression of his mercy? Why did he do that? Well, Genesis 7-1 tells us that it was because God saw that Noah was righteous. He feared the Lord. He was a man who feared the Lord. He obeyed his word. Whatever God told him to do, Noah did it. Genesis 6.22, he did all that God commanded him. He didn't create an exception list. He did all that God commanded him. And Noah experienced God's blessing as a result of obeying God's word. But, but brother, if you're a father, notice that that blessing, that protection, that deliverance, it didn't stop with Noah, okay? It overflowed out of Noah's life, bringing blessing and protection and deliverance for everyone in his family. Why do I make a big deal out of that? For this reason, gentlemen, as you go, so goes your family. If you follow hard after the Lord, if, if you're setting the spiritual pace for life in your home, then your wife and your children are going to be blessed because of you. 
But if you're not following hard after the Lord, they're going to experience the, the consequences. The most important thing, dads, that you do in your home and for the children in your home is not to fill their college savings account to the max. It's not to provide them all the toys that they want. It's not to deliver them from every conceivable care in this world. The most important thing you do, dads, is you teach the people in your home how to do all that the Lord God commands. That's your calling. You obey God, and God's spiritual blessing on your life will overflow in spiritual blessing onto their lives. It's the way it always works. Now, hear this. Hear this. Do you ultimately control the spiritual outcome of the people in your home, Dad? You don't. You don't. Moms or wives, if, if you're sitting there hearing me say that and you're thinking, I know, and because I believe that, it's why I'm so sad about the spiritual condition of my husband. Hear what I just said. He does not control the ultimate spiritual outcome of the men and women in your home. King Jesus controls that. That's good news. But... Does their experience, your children's experience of God's blessing, depend in real measure on their father's faithfulness to follow hard after the Lord? Yes, it does. Now, his sons experience God's deliverance because their dad obeyed the Lord. Notice that. Notice that. Now, look at Genesis 9.18. Look at these sons that were delivered along with Noah. Here's where we're going to get into the bulk of our passage for this morning. Genesis 9.18, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verse 19, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. We're going to see next Sunday, chapters 10 and 11, why they were dispersed and how they were dispersed. That's coming up. But before we get there, these short verses teach us something really important. We, we need to understand two things here, okay? First, we all share a biological unity as sons and daughters of Noah. You, don't, you know what you don't need Ancestry.com to know? Are you related to Noah? The answer is yes. There's a biological unity. But... And here's the real point of this text. That does not mean we are all the same. Because there's two kinds of people in Noah's family. Two kinds of children in his home. Two kinds of seed in his house. And two kinds of people in the world today. Those who are living under the blessing of Almighty God and those who are living under the curse of sin. There's two kinds of people. You, you are right now, at every point in your life, everyone you see on the news, everyone you work with, everyone you drive with, everyone you see walking down the road. There's two kinds of people. Either they're living under the blessing of God or they're living under the curse of sin. That's the main point. The most fundamental difference among us, friends, is not the language we speak, or the color of our skin, 
or how educated we are or the continent on which we're born. The, the fundamental difference among us is a distinction that's established and upheld by the word of God, namely this, the spiritual distinction between those who are living under the blessing of God and those who are living under the curse of sin. So I ask you, friend, which kind of person are you? Who are you? Not which kind of person do you think you are or which kind of person do you want to be. I'm asking you which kind of person does the all-knowing, perfectly just, and abundantly merciful God say that you are through what he says in his word. That's what I'm asking you. Unless you conclude, Williams, I'm a decent person. I'm a good guy. I know where I stand with God. Well, the Lord warns you in verses 20 through 21. Look there with me. This is the first point of this sermon. Verses 20 and 21 teach us that even the righteous are beset with sin. Even the righteous are beset with sin. This recreation through Noah starts off well enough. Right? Look at verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Now, that's really promising on two levels, okay? On two levels. First, he's doing exactly what God commanded him to do. Exactly what God commanded Adam to do, the first man. Genesis 9-7, what did God say to Noah? Direct word, no confusion, explicit, black and white. Be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. So God gave Noah green plants for food. And what is Noah doing? He is cultivating, he is growing green plants for food. And the second encouraging thing here is that he appears to be doing what his father Lamech really hoped he would do. So what did his father say when he was born? Genesis 5.28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. Or rest saying out of the ground that the Lord is cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Notice that out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, Noah will bring relief. So when the very first thing Noah does after thanking God for his deliverance is become a man of the soil of the ground, what are you thinking as you're reading this? Oh, this is good. This is really good. The righteous man who walks with God is obeying God and he's fulfilling this crazy good prophecy that his father gave to him. Could it be, Lord, that, that he's the one through whom you'll make all things new and, and man will become what you created him to be? That this recreation through Noah starts off with flying colors. The wicked are gone, the righteous are here, and they are finally barking up the right tree. We're back on track. Now look at verse 20 again. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk. Let, let's just suffice it to say that Noah didn't stop farming with green beans. <laughs> He didn't. Now, some of you are thinking, I knew it. 
Noah started drinking and dancing and associating with those who do. I could have told you what was going to happen. God got Eve with the apple. God just saw Noah go down with the grape. Let me make something really clear here. All right? And if you want to amen this, you are free. Wine is a gift from God. We're growing. That's great. Good, good. Don't take my word for it. Psalm 104, 14. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock. Who's the you here? God. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Praise God is right. It's a gift from the Lord. It's a gift from the Lord. But you know why we're laughing? Because we're a little uncomfortable. Right? Because what do we do with God's good gifts, friends? Well, we take a good gift and we make it our God. We take a good gift, we make it our God. Our our trouble is not what we want, it's that we want it too much. And when we abandon self-control, when we decide that we need, we need one of God's gifts to make us happy, And that knowing, enjoying, and living for God himself isn't enough. You know what we're doing? We're asking a created thing to satisfy our soul when only the creator who made it can satisfy our soul. That's where we get in trouble. We do that with money. We do that with friends. We do that with marriage. We do that with sex. We do that with entertainment. We do, we do it with alcohol. We, we make it our functional God. Instead of singing, Lord, I need you, we sing, alcohol, I need you. Or sex, I need you. Proverbs 23, 29, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine, your eyes will see strange things, verse 33, and your heart will utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you say, but I wasn't hurt. They beat me, but I didn't feel it. When will I awake? I must have another drink. Friends, Noah was a righteous man. He was a righteous man. But you know what? Even the righteous are beset with sin. Beset with sin. And yeah, I'm talking about you and me. Even the righteous fall into sin. And in, and in drinking until he got drunk, that's precisely what Noah did. Look back at verse 21. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered, or you could translate that, or uncovered himself in his tent. He starts off walking with God, and he ends up smashed and exposed. How's that for contrast? 
If, if you're reading straight through Genesis, I, I think the disappointment you would feel at this point is palpable. Okay? Here's Noah. New world, new creation, new start, and yet he did the exact same thing that Adam did. He sinned. Do you know what the point of that is? The point of that, friends, is that you don't need a second chance. You need a savior. We don't don't sing to the God of the universe because he gives second chances because he could give us 200 chances and we would still sin. I mean, if Noah, there's two people in the Bible, they walked with God. Noah's one of them. And that guy, he still sinned. If, if, if the heroes of the faith fall into sin, that reminds us that we can't deliver ourselves or anyone else from the curse. God himself must do the work. Psalm 3 verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Even the righteous are beset with sin. So, so friend, you, you may have a great track record of obeying God, okay? Everyone around you, your, your family, your friends, your extended family, they, they may all think, wow, look at that girl. She, she doesn't do what all those other kids do. She's so godly. She's so mature. She's so respectful. You know what God says to you? God says, daughter, you're still a sinner and you need a savior. And nobody around you may know that, but God knows that. God's not fooled. Other other people may think that you're perfect, but God's not fooled. And God's word isn't fooled. God's word is brutally honest about the heroes of the faith. And that's both humbling for us and encouraging. The Bible doesn't pretend that Christians are perfect. It portrays them as men and women who walk with God, who obey God, who are genuinely righteous and yet still struggle with sin. Now that doesn't mean, please hear me on this point, that doesn't mean that the response to hypocrisy in the church is to throw up our hands, shrug our shoulders and say, you know what, we're all broken. Have you noticed how trendy that's become? Our brokenness almost becomes this badge of are you a real Christian? If if you don't go around like, I'm just so broken, so broken, people think you're proud. That is not the biblical response to the fact that the righteous are beset with sin. You know what the biblical response is to the fact that the righteous are beset with sin? It's to fight for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Be humble. Be honest, the righteous are still beset with sin. But in light of that, fight for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Noah took a good thing, wine, and consumed it until it took control of his life. It became his functional God. So I challenge you to be honest and ask someone who knows you well this week, a spouse, a friend, a roommate, where am I most vulnerable to doing that? 
Where do you see me beset with sin? Where, where do you see me vulnerable to, to taking a good thing, to taking a God thing, a gift, and asking that to do for me what only God can do for me? And by the way, if a friend or family member calls you out and they say, well, I, I think that job or that project or that entertainment or that drink has become your functional God. I love you, and I'm being honest. You have an idol in your life. And the first thing you say back to them is, well, come on, show me in the Bible where God says that's a bad thing, huh? You just indicted yourself. Why'd you get angry? Because your wife stepped on your because your parents, they took away your God. The righteous are beset with sin, and we need help from each other because we're blind to this, friends, to know, Lord, where is it that I too am beset with sin? We need help. The fundamental point of, of verses 20 and 21 in the context of this whole book is that even the righteous are beset with sin. And thus, back up to the big picture here, the one thing that separates those who are living under the blessing of God from those who are living under the curse of sin cannot be that the latter sins, but the former does not. Follow me? Why? Because even the righteous are beset with sin. So, so if it's not the presence of sin that makes this distinction between those who are living under the blessing of God, those who are living under the curse of sin, if, if sin is present in both of their lives, what is it that makes the distinction? Point number two. Here's the distinction. Here's the separation, okay? Point number two, the wicked revel in what the righteous take pains to avoid. I'm talking about the fight now, right? The wicked revel in what the righteous take pains to avoid. Look at verse 22. Noah's drunkenness, his indecency was, was wrong, but that's not the most serious sin in this story. Look at verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, we'll come back to that, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. His seeing wasn't accidental. It was deliberate. It was intentional. Why, why do I say that? Because though Ham is Noah's youngest son, he's also an adult son. How do I know that? Because Genesis says he had a wife. You know what that means? He had his own tent. His own family. His own space. He should have honored Noah, respected his privacy, and, and stayed outside, but he didn't do that. He went in, and his, his lust for sensuality led him into voyeurism. And having gazed on his father's nakedness, he then went and, and told his brothers what he had seen. Okay, now, now listen, listen to me. Typically, if you're ashamed of something you saw, something that you know you, you searched for on your phone and then deleted your history, you're, you're typically not eager to tell other people about that, right? 
But that's precisely what Ham did. There's no shame. He's he's not even trying to hide his sin like Adam did in the garden. He's boasting in it. He's celebrating it. He's glorying and and reveling in it. He's, He's telling others about it. He's not just looking at pornography. He's sharing pornography. He's he's not just stumbling into sin. He's running towards sin and presumably encouraging and beckoning other people to run with him. You know, after sin entered God's perfect world in Genesis 3, nakedness is not a good thing. Not a good thing, okay? So some of you may be thinking, well, what's the big deal? It's biology. It, it, in Genesis, after Genesis 3, nakedness is not a good thing. It, it's a symbol of our guilt and our shame before a holy God. Did, did you ever notice that the very first place Adam and Eve felt the curse of sin was in their sexuality. And they realized they were naked. I'll tell you why I think that's the case. I think it's the case because it's through our sexuality, our maleness and femaleness, that we uniquely image the glory and goodness of our Creator. And where the image of man is most glorious, the stain of sin is most shameful. That's why it works that way. And and from that point forward, to be naked in Genesis is to be exposed and vulnerable, not not just in a physical sense, but also in a spiritual sense. Now now we need to remember here, because we're talking about Genesis 3, how did God respond to Adam and Eve's nakedness? Well, he made garments of skin and and clothed them, right? He didn't mock them. He didn't humiliate them. He met them at the point of their need. He covered their shame. That's exactly what Shem and Japheth did for Noah. They didn't gaze on their father. They didn't gossip about their father. They covered their father. Look at verse 23. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, you may be thinking, I'd like a little more detail on exactly what Ham did. I I get these guys, why why not just say, and they, they threw a blanket over him? Well, there's a reason that the Lord goes to such great lengths to describe what Shem and Japheth did. Okay? The reason's this, because the contrast between their actions and Ham's actions points to the heart of the contrast between the wicked and the righteous. What's the contrast? Listen, Ham dishonored his father. Shem and Japheth honored their father. Ham took advantage of dad's foolishness. Shem and Japheth covered his shame. Ham reveled in sin. Shem and Japheth took great pains to avoid sin. Ham spread the word about Noah's humiliation. Shem and Japheth brought an end to Noah's humiliation. Just think with me about all the ways those two brothers could have responded to their dad. 
They, they could have gone inside with Ham and, and seen Noah. After all, if he wasn't okay with us seeing him, he shouldn't have uncovered himself in the first place. If she didn't want me to look at her video, she wouldn't have let herself to be filmed in the first place. Or Shem and Japheth could have stayed outside Noah's tent, but, but joined in the mockery as Ham told them what he saw. After all, it's important to strike that perfect balance between being a pervert and being a prude. Or they could have walked away, retreating to the holy huddle of their own tents and leaving Noah to suffer the consequences of his folly. But they didn't do that. They didn't do any of that. What, what did they do? They did what was honorable. They did what was compassionate. They guarded their eyes and they protected their father. Friends, be honest this morning. How do you respond to sin in the world around you? How do you respond? Do you, do you revel in it as a spectator, feasting your eyes on, on sensuality? You, you tell yourself, I never get drunk. I certainly would never uncover myself, but you're happy to click the link. You're happy to watch the video. If I could be so bold as to say, I, I think part of the intrinsic appeal of more than one reality TV show is that it gives us a front row, front row seat on foolishness and sin. I'd never do that. Hey, can you rewind that part? I'd never do that. Oh, can you believe that? Dude, did you check out the episode last night? We laugh at folly. We, we shake our heads at wickedness. We, we watch it again and again and again. And it, and it gets worse, friends. I mean, we give money at conferences with other Christians to help end sex trafficking in third world countries. We go on mission trips to combat sexual violence and, and prostitution. We, we read about Ham's actions and we think, my goodness, what a pervert. And then we go home, and in the privacy of our bedroom, we consume freely all the pornography we ever want to watch. It's wickedness, friends. It's, it's wickedness. It's, it's depravity. The, the wicked revel in what the righteous take pains to avoid. A wicked glory in other people's shame and feast on the latest expose. The righteous cover other people's shame and refuse to indulge in gossip and slander. Okay, the, the, the wicked take pleasure whenever an authority figure is, is caught in a compromising situation and, and share it and like it and spread it to the four winds. The righteous remember that all of us are beset with sin and work hard to help and protect and support public figures that have been humiliated in the public square. The wicked revel what the righteous take pains to, to avoid. And, and these verses, Genesis 22 and 23, they press us to humbly ask and answer two questions, okay? Listen here. First, where in my life do I need to walk backward? Where in your life do you need to walk backward? Guarding your eyes from gazing at sin. Second, 
Where in your life do you need to cover the nakedness of someone near to you who is suffering and humiliated on account of their sin? Where do you need to walk backward? Where do you need to cover their nakedness? Friends, it's not the presence of sin that separates the wicked from the righteous. The righteous are beset with sin. It's the fact that the wicked revel in what the righteous take pains to avoid. That's the point. But even me, hearing me say that, you may be thinking, well, Matthew, why is this such a big deal? I mean, I feel like you're getting all dramatic and you're overplaying it. I mean, what, what's the big deal? Sure, Ham should have never gone in and looked at Noah, let alone spread the word, but, but why is that such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal why are you making such a big deal about, about the way we respond to temptation in our life or to the presence of sin and shame in the lives of other people? Why, why is all that such a big deal? Well, it's because, point number three, the way we respond to sin determines the way God responds to us. Okay? Why is it such a big deal? Because the way you respond to sin determines the way God responds to you. That's a big deal. Look at verse 25. So suffice it to say, I think all that goes down at the end of this story comes as a bit of a surprise. So, so remember, Ham humiliates and dishonors his father. But when Noah wakes up and learns what his youngest son did, what does he say? He says, cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Why do I say that's a little bit of a surprise? Well, if Ham is the one who chose to sin, why does his son Canaan receive the curse? Tracking with me? Ah, see, I found a place. God's not just. Well, slow down, cowboy. <laughs> slow down. You have to understand something about the original recipients of this book. We, we can't read scripture like it's this fell from the heavens on a meteorite magic. It has a context. God, God reveals himself in a supernatural way, but, but he reveals himself in history. What's the context here? What, what, what do we need to know about the original recipients of this book? Well, notice back in verse 18 that Ham is identified as the father of Canaan. And again in verse 22, Ham is again described as the father of Canaan. The, the Canaanites, if you didn't know this, the Canaanites, the descendants of Canaan, they were the people occupying the land that God promised to give Israel after he delivered her from slavery in Egypt. That's the Canaanites. And, and given the likelihood that Moses is the author of Genesis, Israel probably received this book shortly before she entered the promised land of Canaan, crossing the Jordan under the leadership of Joshua. So why is that important? It's for this reason, okay? Reading the account of Noah's sons, the distinction between them in Genesis 9 would have helped Israel remember the essential distinction between herself and all the peoples of Canaan in two respects. First, as descendants of Ham, the Canaanites followed the example of their father in embracing sensuality. 
They did. Read Leviticus 18 for more details. The curse and judgment of God fell upon the Canaanites as a result and became the theological justification for Israel subjecting them and destroying them. But second, as the descendants of Shem, the Israelites needed to remember that the Lord blessed Shem for the simple reason that Shem chose to obey the Lord. And it was Shem's obedience, right? His, his refusal to revel in his brother's sin and, and the care he took to avoid his brother's sin that ultimately distinguished him from his brother, identifying him as God's people and qualifying him to receive God's blessing. So as Israel's preparing to enter the land of Canaan, God wants to use Genesis 9 and the story of the distinction between Noah's sons to remind his people not to presume on his favor. Not to presume, but rather to recognize that the way we respond to sin will determine the way God responds to us. Israel needs to take great care. Great care. Read the book of Deuteronomy at this point in her history, to, to not be drawn away from following the Lord and to forfeit the blessings of the Lord by, by running into the sexual sin and immorality of the Canaanites. And so this is a warning. This is a warning. You're about to go in Israel and destroy the Canaanites because they are under the just curse of God because they have walked in the way of their father, Ham. And you must remember that the only reason Shem was my son and Shem received my blessing with his brother Japheth is that he responded to sin in the entire opposite way that his brother Ham did. Remember that, Israel. God blessed the line of Shem because of his obedience. God cursed the line of Ham because of his disobedience. The, the enduring principle is clear here. Okay, what's the timeless principle? The way we respond to sin determines the way God responds to us. And friends, that's why, back to the beginning of this sermon, that's why the distinction between the righteous and the wicked is so important to understand. Because it determines your future. And you know what else it determines? it determines in part the future of your descendants. Exodus 20, verse 5. The Lord's warning Israel here to flee idolatry, including the idolatry of the Canaanites. Listen to what God says. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Don't do it. Don't revel in wickedness. Take pains to avoid wickedness. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, the children aren't innocent, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Friend, if you want to experience God's blessing in your life, do you know what you have to do? You have to obey the word of the Lord. You have to obey his word. If you revel in sin and shame, instead of taking pains to avoid sin and shame, you're, you're going to suffer the consequences. 
which means the choice is yours. And so I, I implore you, I urge you, friend, flee from sin for your own sake and for the sake of your children that you and they might know the blessing of God. The way we respond to sin determines the way God responds to us. I'll conclude with this. The, the story of Noah's sons, it teaches us something. Okay, it teaches us what? There are two kinds of people in the world. Those who are living under the blessing of God, those who are living under the, the curse of sin, and what, what separates those two groups is not that sin is present in one and not the other. Why not? Because even the righteous are beset with sin. What separates them, what, what distinguishes the, the wicked from the righteous is that the wicked revel and run after what the righteous take pains to avoid. It, it's an avoidance that refuses to, to fix our minds on what's evil and seizes every opportunity to protect and care for those that are suffering and vulnerable on account of their sin. And that's what makes the church different than the world, quite frankly. But friend, I remind you in closing that our hope is not ultimately found in being different. Because like Noah, we will inevitably stumble and fall. Our, our hope is found in the one whom Noah foreshadowed. Okay? A righteous descendant in the line of Shem who avoided every temptation to sin, who perfectly obeyed the law of God, and who died on a cross so that we could be forgiven for all the times that we have done what is shameful and gazed on what is shameful and empowered through his shed blood to walk in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. Those who live under the blessing of God and those who live under the curse of sin are distinguished by their actions, but they are ultimately separated by their response to Jesus Christ. The person and work of Christ is inherently divisive in the sense that it separates those who trust Jesus and don't trust or don't trust Jesus to do for them what Noah could not do for himself and what you and I cannot do for ourselves. What, what is that? We cannot earn the blessing of God. We can't do it. Don't you go out of here trying to do that. You can't undo the curse of sin in your life. You can't make yourself or your world all that God created it to be. But you know what, friends? Jesus can, Jesus has, Jesus is, and Jesus is going to keep right on doing that. Noah could not save himself or his world. He needed a Savior. And guess what? You do too. You do too. So till the day he comes back, may we be a holy people who display our trust in him, our allegiance to Jesus, our, our love for Jesus by, by running away from wickedness and running toward righteousness until the day when King Jesus makes all things new.
Father, we need help to do that. We're sobered by the distinction that you make in your word between the righteous and the wicked, between those who live under your blessing, those who live under the curse of sin. And Heavenly Father, I pray right now that you would show us where we need to walk backward. And you would give us the courage to be humble and honest where we've reveled in sin instead of taking pains to avoid sin. Holy Spirit, I thank you that that you're at work in this room right now. I can sense it. It's not a weird thing. It's what you've promised to do. You you take your word and you, you pierce our hearts. You search our hearts. Thank you for speaking like we prayed that you would. We want to be holy as you're holy. And we want to run after that with a humility that knows we'll always be beset with sin. But Father, we don't want to revel in what nailed you to the cross. We want to run from wickedness. We want to run toward righteousness. We want to take great pains like Shem and Japheth to do that. And we want to do all that with our hope in you, Jesus, the descendant of Shem, who did perfectly what ultimately Shem and Japheth could not even themselves do perfectly. Our trust is in you. And we pray that that faith and trust would fuel mighty obedience. Amen. Let's stand and sing.